Now let's pray. Father, I thank you for, uh, for all that you are and all that you do. Bless this time that we have together. Let your words be spoken and, and let them be true. And let them penetrate hearts and minds. So I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, as you might have guessed from the, um, from the video, today I'm going to talk about a dirty word in the Bible. If the teens were in here, they'd be going, ooh, great. <laughs> wonder whatever that is. It's now, but the thing is, it's not really a dirty word. It's actually a, pretty, a perfectly fine word. But in the hearts and the minds of many, it's one of the things that's wrong with the church. Some believe it's just all preachers ever talk about. No, not Satan, honey, but that's... <laughs> Thank you for channeling the church lady. <clears throat> um, now, if you're a regular at church, you know that's not true, right? You know it's not always the topic that we talk about. But this word has a tendency, even when you mention it, to make regular churchgoers kind of squirm in their seats a little bit. <laughs> Now, if you happen to have watched the Republican presidential debate, uh, you would have noticed that uh, one of the candidates, uh, pediatric neurosurgeon Dr. Ben Carson, actually had the nerve to mention this word in, his, um, in one of his segments. So have you guessed what word I'm referring to? Tithing. Now, <clears throat> before I get into the discussion of this word, I want to preface it with a couple of things. <clears throat> First of all, I, I'm a person who hates hidden agendas. And I, I would imagine most of you do too. You know what I'm talking about is <clears throat> it's just dishonest and disingenuous when someone is talking about something and they look like they're trying to achieve this goal for one reason, when in fact they're actually working to achieve the goal for another reason. Which is, to me, that's wrong. So <clears throat> at, the, at the onset of this message on tithing, I want to get something on the table, right? So we just get this out, get this cleared up. Um, our church is not doing terribly well financially. Now, <clears throat> we're not in danger of folding. We're not in danger of not being able to pay our bills. And we won't be for, for quite a while, probably. We have <clears throat> about $30,000 in the bank. <clears throat> However, about 12 to 18 months ago, it was closer to 50. And so we've been steadily eating into our reserves due to a shortfall that's occurring each month. Uh, and the problem is that the bulk of what we spend it on is fixed. I mean, we can't just optionally not pay the rent one month. So there, there's not a lot of wiggle room in our budget to, uh, you know, cut this or cut that. And so, <clears throat> yes, part of the reason, <clears throat> excuse me, part of the reason for talking about tithing today is that I hope as a result our giving will increase. 
I mean, that's kind of a duh, really. I mean, the reason that I'm, I'm putting this in front of, um, in the front of this message is that I don't want this to distract from what I'm actually going to say about tithing, which is really more about how it personally benefits the giver. But I don't want you to be sitting there listening to this and then assuming that the reason it's being preached is simply because the church needs more money, also known as a hidden agenda <laughs> or an ulterior motive, right? Because if you do, you're going to miss or just ignore all of the benefits that are part of being a tither. And so I'm just trying to circumvent that up front. <laughs> by laying this out and just saying the way it is. You know, yes, absolutely, when you tithe, it benefits the church. You know, as I'm going to explain, that's really kind of how this all started. I mean, if we look back into history, and I'm going to share a little bit of that with you, you'll see that's been the idea all along. Well, not all along, but eventually we got to that. But what I want you to see is that it really benefits the people who are doing the giving. Now, secondly, I'm not going to show any kind of funny videos about tithing. I've done that in the past. Um, and more than likely, if I were to really analyze myself, part of the reason is that talking about tithing and talking about giving and talking about money is in general uncomfortable for pastors. And so we try to mask our discomfort by making light of the subject. And so we find a funny video and we show that and it kind of makes it light and lightens the mood a little bit because everyone's talking about money again. But see, I have this hunch that in doing so, it maybe waters down the message and it makes it seem less important than it really is. And, you know, if what I'm saying is 100% of biblical truth, then what you think of me for saying it doesn't matter a whit. And in fact, I've adopted a scripture long ago that sort of informs my preaching, and it's Galatians 1.10. And it says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, then I would not be a servant of Christ. So that's it for the preface, all right? So just so that you know, we're clear on everything, okay? So now you can sort of put that in the back of your mind and focus on what we're going to say about tithing. All right. <clears throat> so what I'd like to do is just kind of give you a brief history of this subject, you know, and you may have heard some of this before, some of it may be new, but at least we'll cover the basics so that we're all on the same page. Now, let's start with a definition. So, essentially, tithe is a word that translates both Hebrew and Greek word that means a tenth. Or, in some cases, it can mean to take or give a tenth. So, that's sort of the root of this word. Now, how did we get, you know, where did this come from? How is one-tenth chosen for the sacred tax? Well, we really don't know. All that can be said for certain is that the, the term or the idea of this is very, very old and more than likely antedates the scriptures we have. So in other words, this was something that was practiced before Israel, right? And some of the ancient writings bear that out. 
Um, it could be that we came to this because the ancient system of counting was pretty simple. <laughs> Fingers and toes, right? All right, so it just so happens there's 10 of each. Uh, so that could be part of it. Um, 10 also is considered a sacred number in Scripture. And all you've got to do is spend a little bit of time reading through the Bible and you'll see that there's a whole lot of tens. A lot of things are ten this, ten this, ten this. <clears throat> it also just so happens that two other very prominent sacred numbers in scriptures, three and seven, just coincidentally add up to ten. So, anyway, those are some of the reasons or possibly where this came from, okay? Um, as I mentioned, this is an important part of Israelite culture, but it's not unique to the Israelites. It shows up in many other cultures as well. Uh, sometimes it's just merely a tax that's paid to the king. Interesting that that's what it was. But sometimes it can also be an offering to a deity of some nature. And sometimes it's a combination of the two. So. Just from a secular standpoint, it does appear other places other than in our scriptures. Now, if we looked at tithing in the Old Testament, there's, it's sort of interesting. Because you know, normally there's this uh, principle of uh, biblical hermeneutics or biblical study, you know, interpretation, called the law or principle of first mention. Right? And so the idea is that if you're studying a subject, you want to find the first place that it's mentioned in scripture because that's often significant and may offer some real clues as to what it means. Well, uh, oddly enough, the first time tithing is actually mentioned is Genesis 14.20. And it's when Abram is giving the spoils of warfare to Melchizedek. Okay, <clears throat> now... This is involving the spoils of war, not the fruit of the ground. And there's also really no mention of any kind of law up to this point that requires him to do that. He, it just kind of comes out of nowhere, if you will. There's also no mention of tithing in the great law code that we find in Exodus. Now, however, there are mentions of... Um, laws governing the giving of first fruits. And the first fruits were presumably the first and the best of a crop, and it's supposed to be given to God in recognition that all things belong and come primarily from him. Okay. Um, now, it's possible that <clears throat> this idea of the tithe may have evolved from this giving of the first fruits because, you know, people needed to know, well, how much am I supposed to give, right? I'm supposed to give first fruits. And so, you know, they needed some idea of, okay, well, how much should I bring? Just, as I was thinking about this, I thought this is probably the ancient predecessor to the do I give on the gross or the net argument. But this really is its just speculation, and, and the biblical text is actually somewhat ambiguous. Now, I, don't, I didn't study it thoroughly, so that may be um, a little bit of an overstatement, but 
If you look at Deuteronomy 26, 1 through 15, that, ver that set of verses seems to equate the two. But then if you look in Nehemiah uh, 1244, that very definitely separates them and makes them two separate and distinct things. So anyway, that's just a uh, <coughs> sort of a little history of where that came from. Now, when it was first mentioned, the idea is that this is an offering that's made to God, okay? But you were to put this aside and then you were to go to a designated place and you consumed it, right? And if you didn't have enough, you took some money and when you got to the designated place, you, you bought food and you ate this. You know, that, was, that was what this was for. It was kind of a celebration. Uh, but then, you know, over time, the Israelite society grew, started to expand, and as it did so, social problems started to crop up more frequently. Okay, and so they changed the law. And the law is now that every third year, the Israelites were supposed to give their tithe or their first fruits to the town that they lived in. And it was there to take care of the widows and the orphans, the poor, as well as the Levites and the priests. Because if you'll remember from scripture, the Levites weren't given any land. When all of the land was divvied up amongst the tribes, the Levites did not get land by which they could sustain themselves. And so they were to be cared for by the people. And this was the mechanism that was put in place to do that. Then, sort of as another step in this process, um, the religious practices grew and expanded within the Israelite community. And the numbers of the Levites and the numbers of the priests also grew, uh, you know, as a result. And so, once again, the law was modified somewhat. And now, every year, the full tenth was to be given to uh, support the Levites, the priests, and the, the temple, the house of God. And that's really kind of how it sort of uh, came into being. And I mean, I'm giving you a very abbreviated look at this. So, that, you know, there could be lots more detail we could talk about. And you can read in scripture to, you know, sort of learn more about that. It's mentioned quite a bit. Now, the underlying idea from the tithe comes from Psalm 24.1. And Psalm 24.1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. He founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. And so the purpose of this was for Israel to acknowledge this, that everything that they had came from God. And it, it really allowed them through their support of uh, the priests and the Levites and, and through the poor to be part of God's redemptive activity, right? You know, by giving themselves, they were helping to take care of these needy people. So let's turn to the New Testament. Now, it's kind of surprising that there are no specific instructions for tithing in the New Testament. You would think there might be, but there aren't. Um, the closest thing that we really have is 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. And that says this. Remember this. 
who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. All right, so given that, would we say that Christians today are obligated to tithe? Well, I would suggest that any Christian today who thinks that tithing is just an Old Testament practice and, and really doesn't apply to us now is missing the point of God's call for us to be willing givers. We don't have the choice to just ignore godly principles simply because they came through the Old Testament law. You know, and in fact, there is a definite relationship between the Christians today and God's law, and his name is Jesus. Jesus came and tells us to came that he does not to eliminate the law, but to fulfill it. And so the central part of that fulfilling was obviously giving his sinless life as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Because, you know, we could never live up to all of the good and perfect requirements of God's law. However, God still expects us to abide by the ethical and moral principles of the Old Testament, you know, including tithing, I believe. And there's no, you know, like I said, there's no New Testament command that says we're supposed to do this. But there's also nothing in the New Testament that says that it's an invalid principle, that it's not something to be done any longer. And in fact, if we were to look at Matthew 23, 23, um, Jesus in this passage is condemning insincere tithing but then immediately encourages the practice when it's accompanied by acts of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Let's read it. It says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the most important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You have practiced the latter, Without, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, okay? So what he's saying here is there's more to this tithing thing than just giving. <clears throat> that part is still important. But also these other things as well are, are, should be part of that. And so you could look at this and say that you know, Jesus is really encouraging an even higher degree of sacrifice and generosity so that the tithe, tithe should ultimately represent the minimum amount that we should now be returning to God. <clears throat> you know, of course, as we've looked at in 2 Corinthians, the attitude that we're giving with is equally important. God wants us to give willingly, but not out of, you know, the sense of obligation. It's like, oh, man, I'm going to write that check again. 
because if that's the attitude that you take into this with this kind of resentment or, you know, it's a grudging thing, then you're going to lose much of the blessing that actually can come as a result of doing this if you rather than if you faithfully give out of love rather than out of obligation. So what I'd like to do now <clears throat> is give you ten reasons why you should tithe. And the first one is that it's an opportunity to experience joy. God is a giver, and obviously we all know that. And so any time that we have the opportunity to imitate God and do the works that he does, whether it's sharing our faith or forgiving another person or praying for a sick person or giving, we're tapping into that very life and being of God. And so people... <clears throat> who hoard things never have the opportunity to really fully experience God's life. <coughs> Only givers can really experience the joy of God. Second, it's an opportunity to show gratitude to God. You know, God has blessed everyone here Amen. with a whole variety of blessings. Material, well-being, family, church, work, health, you could go down the list. How many other ways do we really have to say thank you? Other than to return a portion to God of what he has given to us. Simply stated, it's a way for us to say thank you to God. <coughs> It's an opportunity to participate in all of the ministries of the church. Churches are involved in a wide number of ministries that no one person by themselves could ever really be involved in. You wouldn't have enough time or money or whatever to really do that. And so someone who gives to the local church has an opportunity to participate in all of the ministries of the church. It's an opportunity to practically acknowledge our, our view of life. So look at it this way. Either the money that we control is ours, which is the secular worldview, right? It's my money. Or all of our money belongs to God. Now, it's true that only a portion of our time <clears throat> and only some of our money is going to be specifically designated for God <coughs> and for his use. But all the rest ought to be dedicated to him, if not given to him. And it should be used according to his will and devoted to the things that honor him. It's an opportunity to support what we believe in. One of the best ways for a person to support a cause that they believe in is to give money to that cause. Of course, financial giving is not the only way to support something, but you can give your time, you can, <clears throat> you can give encouragement, there's other valid ways of supporting a cause, but giving financially is certainly one major way to support that which you believe in. 
This one I think is interesting. It's an opportunity to be free from financial anxiety. You know, a lot of people are very anxious about their finances. And <clears throat> generally, it's because they really haven't learned about the paradoxical nature of the Christian life. People who hold tightly to their money are going to be in bondage to financial concerns. People who open their hands freely in giving will experience emotional and financial liberty. Jesus was not a wealthy man. Yet he was a man who had tremendous financial peace. On a practical level, it's an opportunity to pay for services that we and our families receive. You know, it's an extraordinary thing that many of us receive services such as counseling, training for our children, teaching, opportunities to participate in ministry, and yet we allow others to pick up the tab for services that we receive. Someone has to pay for the lights, the heat, pastoral salaries, the mortgage, and materials that we all enjoy. If you are able to give financially, and almost everyone is able to give something, and you are not giving, then someone is paying the freight for you. It's an opportunity to receive financial blessings from God. See, God actually challenges us to put this to the test. In Malachi 3.10, he says this, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now on this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Now, in a lot of ways, I'm somewhat hesitant to call attention to this. <coughs> because it opens up that whole... <clears throat> That whole name it and claim it, you know. But the truth of my own experience is this. I have never met a tither whom God has not provided for financially. Amen. This promise from the book of Malachi is one of those promises that God is very quick to fulfill. Tithing does produce financial blessing from God. It's an opportunity to store up treasure in heaven. God takes note of everything we do. Whether it's our secret prayer, our secret fasting, or our secret giving. <coughs> it might. Now, whether there's a huge payoff here on earth or ultimately we know there's going to be a heavenly payoff for those who do 
give financially towards the work of the kingdom. And finally, it's an opportunity to give beyond yourself and your own family. You know, there's kind of a, in some places, there's an us for and no more. Or a God bless me and that's as far as I can see. But that's not what Christianity is all about. The only thing that I pay for is, you know, my own children's Christian schools and the thing that, you know, things that directly bless me, such as my home or my furnishings. Then Jesus says, I am no better than the Gentiles. You know, <clears throat> non-Christians pay for their own children's education as well. And so Christian giving is different because it involves sowing beyond ourselves. <clears throat> Good thing I don't talk for a living. Now, a question that some people ask is, should our giving go to the local church? Should all of our giving go to the local church? Well, um, a guy named Gene Getz wrote a really good book on finances called A Biblical Theology of Material Possessions. And he writes this. Every true believer is part of the universal church. However, when we study the New Testament, we cannot bypass the concept of the local church. In fact, <clears throat> approximately 95% of all the references to the ecclesia, which is Greek for church, <coughs> references to local, visible, <clears throat> and organized expressions of the universal church. can't bypass the concept that the local church, um, <clears throat> of the local church, when it comes to determining how Christians should use their material possessions. It's the local church and not another organization that is chiefly designed by God to be the agent of God and the kingdom in this world. Only the local church crosses generational lines ministering not only to students, but to grandparents, babies, singles, and married couples. Only the local church carries on all <coughs> carries on all of the functions of kingdom living, including the worship of God, the teaching of God's word, ministry to the poor, prayer for the sick, the burial of deceased loved ones, world missions, etc. Only the local church functions according to the biblical patterns of church government. 
and only the local church alone is entrusted with two biblical ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. In sum, the local church is the chief focal point of God's plan for the ages and ought to be your focal point for giving. Now, if I can get through it, I would like to share um, my own personal testimony on tithing. I'm going to blow my nose one more time, excuse me. It is so weird. I, I don't struggle with this at all during the week. And yet I come here on Sundays and this becomes the issue. If you've ever heard me tell um, <clears throat> this, <coughs> my story of being called into the ministry. I might have to learn sign language. (laughs) We'll all learn it together. But when I was called into the ministry, one of the things that I always talk about was how once I sort of recognized this call, that I needed to sit down with Sally and have a conversation about this. Now, I don't go into why we needed to have this conversation, but I will now. Because going into, my going into the ministry, in other words, going back to seminary, leaving the job I was in, meant a six-figure drop in our income. I had a very good job as the director of IT. And um, that was going to be a pretty big hit, our our finances and our budget. And so we sat down, we talked about it, and, you know, decided to move forward. So I'm here to tell you now that we never struggled for one moment since the time that we made that decision. In fact, when I did this, we sat down with my son who, how old was Jared? 2004, it would have been 14. We sat down with him and we said, you know, there's probably going to be some changes you know, in our lifestyle, that we may not be able to afford some of the things that we used to be able to afford. We may not be able to take vacations, you know, like we used to and so forth. And um, about, I don't know, it was probably six years later, we were having a conversation about finances one day. He was was with us. He was either in college or he had finished. And... um, you know, we actually told him what we tithe to the church because we felt like he needed to understand how important that was to us. And, I mean, the, the look on his face was, was pretty amazing because he said, well, you know, 
I remember that conversation that, that you had with me about, you know, how our lifestyle was going to change, and yet I never really noticed anything different. And so God has taken care of us through all of this. And we, you know, have not wanted for anything. He just continues to bless us over and over and over again. And so, <clears throat> personally, I cannot advocate strongly enough, you know, for this principle and for, you know, why I think you should do this. Now, I'm, you know, I'm sure if I ask, there are others here who could share similar stories, you know, who, who do tithe regularly and see that God really does bless that. Amen. So, no one is going to make you do it. No one is going to kick you out of here if you don't. But if you don't, Understand that you are really missing the opportunity for a huge financial blessing. Amen. And that's what I really want you to take away from this. Is that, you know, that opportunity is there. And, you know, I cannot help but believe that if you were to be faithful to this the way we were, and I mean, <clears throat> when we... You know, when our income dropped, we never stopped tithing. You know, we, we had to cut some other things. But we kept <clears throat> giving at, you know, a 10% or greater level. And, um, you know, we've never, never had to worry about anything financially. And that included seeding a, a pretty substantial amount of money into this church when it started. So we, we've had the resources to do that through this entire period. So um, don't come to me and tell me, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> you can talk to someone else about that, but it's, it's going to fall on deaf ears if you try to tell me, you know, that I, yeah, I can't do that, I don't have enough money to do that, because... From all appearances, we didn't either. You know, we were trying to figure out with that much of a drop in income how we were going to pay for mortgages and things like that. And yet somehow it was always there. So. I wanted to share one story in closing. Not that one, that was mine. This is from uh, <clears throat> a Christian leader named Gordon McDonald. And he shared a story about how God transformed him from giving as merely an institutional obligation to being a cheerful giver. He says the process began <clears throat> when he and his wife Gail made a missions trip to West Africa. On the first Sunday of our visit, we joined a large crowd of desperately poor Christians for worship. As we neared the church, I noticed that almost every person was carrying something. Some hoisted cages of noisy chickens. Others carried baskets of yams. And still others toted bags of eggs or bowls of cassava paste. 
Why are they bringing all that stuff here, I asked the host. Watch, he said. Almost every person in that African congregation brought something. Soon after the worship began, the moment came when everyone stood and poured into the aisles, singing, clapping, and even shouting. The people began moving forward, each in turn bringing whatever he had brought to a space in the front. Then I got it. This was the West African offering time. The chickens would help others get a tiny farm business started. The yams and eggs given could be sold on the marketplace to help the needy. The cassava paste would guarantee that someone who was hungry would eat. I was captivated. I'd never seen a joyful offering before. Obviously, my keep money under the radar policy would not have worked in that West African church. Those African believers, although they never knew it, had moved me. I began to understand that giving, whether yams or dollars, was not an option for Christ followers. Rather, it was an indication of the direction and the tenor of one's entire life. 